Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What is up? Welcome to the Los Angeles Dodgers podcast on the Believe Network. I am J.P. Hornstra of the Southern California News Group. Happy Bobby Miller Day. The 29th pick of the 2020 draft is starting today, making his major league debut for the Dodgers in Atlanta. His debut comes one day after Gavin Stone gave up four runs in the first inning and nothing after that as the Dodgers beat the NL leading Atlanta Braves 8-6. It's a cool time to be a Dodger fan. It's not entirely clear to me whether we're supposed to be mortified by the thought of having Julio Urias and Dustin May on the IL at the same time, or excited because the future of the pitching staff is materializing right before our eyes. I will get into that discussion with Sean Green later in this episode. Before we do that, a quick scouting report on Bobby Miller. His fastball is averaging averaging 100 miles per hour. And that's as a starter at AAA. He also throws a curveball, a slider, a changeup, and a sinker. And of those four pitches... Only the curve grades out as below average, according to the advanced metrics, which I will link to in the show notes. Of the 40 curveballs he has thrown this season at AAA, he's only gotten one swing and a miss. Not sure how that will play against big league hitters, but maybe we'll find out. Bobby Miller is pitching on five days rest, which was also the case before his last start, Wednesday of last week for Oklahoma City. That was easily his best start of the season. Six innings pitched, two hits allowed, one run, one walk, six punch outs. You might remember that Miller got slow played this spring and was basically on an innings limit until that outing. The Dodgers really couldn't have called him up before this series if they wanted to. And they probably wouldn't have wanted to because he had allowed 12 runs in three games without ever making it out of the fourth inning until last Wednesday. Miller will be opposed by Spencer Strider, who is right now on a short list of the best pitchers in all of baseball, 4-1 and one with a 2.96 ERA after going 16-6 and six with a 2.76 ERA last year. He is leading all pitchers in strikeouts, That's not easy to do. There's a lot of strikeouts in baseball nowadays, but Strider is number one. As a test of the Dodgers' strengths and weaknesses, as we look ahead to the trade deadline, these games in Atlanta are pretty useful. This is game 50 on Tuesday, four shy of the one-third mark of the season. So regardless of whether you're a buyer or a seller, teams around baseball are going to be taking stock of what is working for them and what isn't right about now. As for the Dodgers, I think the bullpen is starting to look solid. 
they've gone out and acquired a relief pitcher, I believe, every season that I've been on the beat. But for a team without a designated closer, I'm surprisingly not hearing a ton of clamor for a new arm to bolster the back end of the bullpen. The rotation is kind of tough to assess right now just because it's a work in progress. We talked about Bobby Miller and Gavin Stone. They are essentially auditioning to stay in the rotation for as long as possible, starting right now. It is monumental to have the top two pitching prospects in the organization effectively auditioning for major league jobs at the same time. But I also think the Dodgers have done well to temper the expectations on these two pitchers accordingly. Julio Urias is expected back from his hamstring injury probably sooner than later. The outlook on Dustin May is a little more hazy. All we know is he will miss a minimum of 60 days because today he was placed on the 60-day IL to make room for Bobby Miller. That means Dustin May won't be back until the end of July at the earliest. Now, Sean and I are going to talk about Walker Bueller later in the episode, but the Dodgers have to feel as if anything they get from him this year is a bonus. But let's just say he and Urias get healthy. If Clayton Kershaw and Tony Gonsolin stay healthy, Dustin May comes back. Like, that's your top five right there, no question. It would be tough for Miller or Stone to force their way into that group. I think the bigger questions are on the depth end. Like, is Noah Syndergaard ever going to be allowed to start a playoff game for the Dodgers this year? Could Miller or Stone or Michael Grove or Ryan Pepio force their way in somehow? Will Bueller make it back as a starter? Will he make it back as a reliever? Will he make it back at all? I don't know, but that's 10 names I just rattled off potential starting pitchers. I just wonder how many of them need to look like they could start a playoff game if you needed them to before the Dodgers go out and trade for somebody else. The one area that for sure could use some upgrades is the lineup. You got Miguel Rojas playing shortstop. I love the guy, but he is not best suited for an everyday starter's job on a team with playoff or World Series aspirations. His bat really profiles as more of a backup, but he's been the starter by default ever since Gavin Lux got hurt in spring training. David Peralta, Chris Taylor, Jason Hayward. Again, on a playoff team, they all look more like backups at this point in their careers. I think that's even more true for Austin Barnes and Trace Thompson. I can't guarantee you that any of those guys have done enough to keep their current role beyond the trade deadline. I think these next couple months are going to be very critical for everybody in that group. One last thing before we bring on Sean, I am obligated to mention that the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence have been invited back to Dodger Stadium to receive an award on the occasion of Pride Night this June. I got some messages on Twitter. What does this have to do with baseball? The answer, honestly, is nothing. Like, I can't think of a story involving this team that got blown out of proportion more since maybe like the Yasiel Puig party bus incident at AAA Oklahoma City. Just top of my head, that's my hunch. But boy, did a heck of a lot get written about a ceremony that is still about three weeks away and is not going to change at all 
from how it was originally planned when it was announced like three weeks ago. All that happened was Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, and the Catholic League, and probably some other groups I'm missing, decided to make it their business to sound a public alarm about the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence being invited to take part on LGBTQ Pride Night at Dodger Stadium. I mean, uh, look, it's Pride Night. What are you thinking? They invited the Dodgers invited the sisters to receive a Community Hero Award for their countless hours of service, ministry, and outreach to those on the edges. I'm reading from the statement here. In addition to promoting human rights and respect for diversity and spiritual enlightenment. And as I read that last part, I just don't know that the Dodgers really did their homework because the sisters of perpetual indulgence are men dressed in drag, their wardrobes are satirizing Catholic nuns. This is a group that commingles the sacred and the profane in a way that would probably make the Venetian painter Titian quite proud. But some prominent Catholics took offense, as I'm sure they did in the 16th century when the Renaissance was happening. Uh, the Dodgers withdrew the invitation, and then on Monday, less than three weeks after the initial invite, the Dodgers backtracked on their backtracking because of the backlash to the backlash. So now the sisters have been reinvited and have gotten a lot more public attention than they would have if they were never uninvited in the first place. You got all that? <laughs> all right, we're going to take a quick break and then I will bring on Sean to discuss Bobby Miller Day. And now I'd like to welcome back Sean Green. Sean, thanks as always for hopping on the podcast. Yeah, always a pleasure. We are speaking at an interesting juncture in the season. Gavin Stone pitched Monday, his second start of the season, and today is Bobby Miller Day, making his major league debut in Atlanta. Understandably, there's some trepidation about losing Dustin May and Julio Urias at the same time, but we have the top two pitching prospects in the organization finally both up at the same time. That doesn't happen a lot, and for my money, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's really cool. And, and you look back at some of the, the dynasties over the last 25 years, and a lot of it comes down to having some of these young, talented starting pitchers um, come up to the league and dominate at the same time. And the closest I, I experienced, and it was, they actually weren't right at the same time, was in Toronto. We had, we had uh, Chris Carpenter, Roy Halladay, and Kelvin Escobar. And they, you know, they kind of had their, their uh, you know, different moments, and one got sent down, the other got called up. But um, when you have some studs like that, it's, you could really build the next 10 years around that talent, and especially when you have the type of payroll flexibility that the Dodgers have had and continue to have, then you could, you could not completely rely on them. You look at the Oakland A's, in the early 2000s, the Moneyball, you know, the movie era, and you know, people talk about that movie. It's like, oh, they had all this this great insight. But you could also turn the, turn the to the other side and say, well, they had Barry Zito, Mark Mulder, and Tim Hudson that were all making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. So it's pretty easy to build 
a great team around the young pitching arms. And I think even if Miller and Stone don't turn out to be the second coming of, you know, Mulder, Hudson, and Zito, even if they're Calvin Escobar, Chris Carpenter, and uh, Roy Halladay, I, I, that's such an interesting example because those guys developed somewhat unevenly. One turned out to be a Hall of Famer. One had a pretty long, steady career. And the other, I can't remember even which Chris Carpenter it was, but both of them were like decent big league pitchers for a while. Well, Carpenter, and he was, Carpenter, I would say, was the, the nastiest right. When he was in St. Louis, I thought he was the toughest right hand pitcher I ever played. I mean, he won the Cy Young, I think, one year in St. Louis. But yeah, I mean, they were all studs. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, 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 but it wasn't readily apparent which of the three would be like the Hall of Famer and which of the three would be, you know what I'm saying? Like they developed somewhat unevenly. So, yes, it's exciting, but this is a long game. Like you mentioned that 10 year span, like it's starting today, which is a little interesting, but it, it's also a very long game. Uh, it's not just today in Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. And it's, and it's, the Dodgers have that advantage of being a payroll team, so they could, they don't need to rely on those guys, and they don't need them to all be successful at the same time. So it takes a lot of the pressure off of, off of, you know, the pitchers, but it also takes, um, you know, it, it just, it just changes the whole dynamic where they can come and develop, and if they struggle a little bit, they can do what they need to do to get them in, into a place to succeed. Yeah, well, Miller is a name Dodger fans have been hearing. Ever since he was drafted in the first round just three years ago, he's 24 years old. His fastball sits in the upper 90s. I, I can't think of a better guy to step in for Dustin May, um, stuff-wise. His entire career is one big blank page. Now, Sean, you were once a first-round draft pick, making his debut for a big market team in Toronto. Any advice for young Mr. Miller? Yeah, I mean, it, it's an exciting moment when you get called up and um, there's always expectations on you. So as a first rounder, you kind of have that pressure to some extent at like the moment you put on that, that Dodger uniform. But I think, you know, hopefully some of the veteran guys will just kind of just remind him, hey, it's the same game. Go out and execute one pitch at a time and not get too caught up in it. And, you know, as a pitcher, I think it's even different. Sometimes it's even easier than being a hitter because when you have stuff like he has, you can make mistakes and still succeed. So, as a hitter, it's like if you're if you're struggling, then there's no one there, no one there, really to to support you. But as a pitcher, you got eight guys or seven guys behind you and a catcher, so you you know just say I'm just going to rear back and throw my 98 mile an hour fastball, you know, over the plate and and let let the rest of the guys help me out. Right. Well, it's kind of like the inverse of that old saying where it's the best hitters in the world only succeed three times out of ten. The worst pitchers in the world only succeed seven times out of ten. So uh, that's where the bar is, if you could think of it that way. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I'm not saying, believe me, I'm not saying pitching is easy because it's definitely not. Um, but I, I think, you know, if I'm a veteran guy, especially in that infield, like a Freddie Freeman, um, you know, Max Muncy, I, I'd say, hey, you know, just throw the ball. If he's struggling a little bit and you see him, like, trying to, hit corners and walking guys and go over there and say, hey, just throw it over the plate. We got you. And it's, it's a comforting thing. I've seen it happen, you know, many times before with young pitchers coming up. And, and you know, that's kind of what you need to hear sometimes in order to um, kind of have that confidence to just, to just play your game and just throw the ball the way you know how to throw it. 
That's a great point. The Dodgers definitely have some veteran infielders, not just Freeman, but uh, Miguel Rojas at shortstop and Max Muncy at third. We'll see how they line up tonight. Um, something to look for, uh, how often they go over to give a, a pep talk or a pat on the shoulder. Um, you know, we mentioned Urias and May, both on the IL. One other guy on the injured list who thinks he's going to come back this season is Walker Bueller. I had a chance to speak with him last week. He thinks he can return to the big leagues as a starter, not even just as a reliever sneaking into the bullpen, but as a starter by September 1st. That's about 12 months from the date of his Tommy John surgery, the second of his career. Sean, you played at a time when Tommy John surgery went from somewhat of a rarity to something that was, if not common, then certainly not like this career-threatening type thing, uh, just somewhat part of the life of a starting pitcher, uh, pitcher in general. Um, now to the point where pitchers have two of them and they speak openly about coming back in 12 months. What was it like to see that transformation happening around the way players talk about Tommy John surgery? Yeah, I mean, really, the, the Dodgers are kind of the the forerunners in, in the Tommy John. You know, Frank Job, who was our team doctor when I was there, um, passed away quite a while ago now. He was like around 90 when he passed away, I think. But he uh, he was the guy. And then Pat Greener was our physical therapist. And he kind of came up with, you know, a lot of the, the exercises and rehab programs. Um, back then, it was really 18 months. They wouldn't even consider getting a guy back into you know a, a game before 18 months. Now you, you'll see you'll see some, especially position players. You see Bryce Harper come back in you know well less than a year, and you'll see some pitchers will come back in 12 months. So the second Tommy John seems it might seem a little bit aggressive to, to try that, but you know if he's ready to go. And the Dodgers are in a place to, you know, which everyone assumes they will be, um, to need him. I, I think it's it's something that they need to take a hard, strong look at. But it's, you know, the I think the mentality around Tommy John's is Tommy John surgeries has definitely changed. And um, I don't know about a third one. Has anyone had a third one yet? No, um, but I think uh, it's Drew Rasmussen over in Tampa Bay uh, is is teetering <laughs> toward that. Uh, he might be the first uh, to come back to the big leagues after a third. Yeah, I just don't know where they get the the tendons at that point. You know, to, I know they pulled the other ones from your forearms. Um, I'm sure there's other parts of the body where they can grab one. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, Walker's at a place where if he can get a good, you know, another, I don't know how many years he got at the first one, was it seven years or so? If he get another seven years, then he gets a full career um, out of the two Tommy John. So. They just got to do. It's got to be smart. It's 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 foolish to try to, to rush something for the short term um, gain. And they know what they're doing. They have yeah. the best medical staff. And and uh, yeah, it's not like he's some run of the mill pitcher. He's you know hopefully a future Hall of Famer. And he's well on his path. So they're not going to mess mess around too much. Well, that's a good way of looking at it, Sean. And, and you know I I've learned a little bit about the procedure. I I know that after they look in the left forearm and the right forearm, if, if there are no clean ligaments to harvest there, they look behind the knee somewhere in that area. And there is actually a plan C. And the only guy I know who did this was Brandon Beachy, because he told me this when he was trying to come back with the Dodgers uh, about eight years ago now. And that's the cadaver. He actually got his ligament from the cadaver, came back, pitched one minor league season. I uh, didn't make it back to the big leagues, but uh, 
even if your body has no clean ligaments, that is no longer an obstacle uh, for a Tommy John surgeon. Yeah, maybe some Dodger fans would be happy to donate their forearm <laughs> to uh, you know, one of their favorite players. That could be a yeah, really really good way to connect with your favorite pitcher, right? <laughs> I, I it's <laughs> we're, we're gonna yeah, have to come like, up with you a get new ten percent. Take a ten or twenty percent of future earnings, and you get uh, you give them your your ligament. Go fund think? me for elbow ligament. Let's make That's it happen. Right. That's right. <laughs> well, I I think we've just struck upon a, a genius business idea, Sean. I don't think we're going to get anything more productive out of this call. So I will let you go. Thank you as always for joining me. And, uh, you know, next time we'll just, we'll just turn this into an entrepreneurial podcast, I think. Yeah. A little shark, shark tank for, uh, for the for Dodgers, Dodgers. Shark yeah. tank. There you go. I love it. <laughs> I love it too. All right. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> All right, thank you as always to Sean Green for hopping on the podcast. I would be remiss if we did not mention that this episode is coming out on the day of the Sean Green game. 21 years ago today, Sean went 6 for 6 for the Dodgers in a game at Miller Park in Milwaukee. Four homers, a double, a single, and a record 19 total bases. Some have called this the greatest single-game offensive performance in baseball history. Now, Sean has done a ton of interviews about that day, and maybe the most exhaustive look came on the 20th anniversary of the game one year ago today with ESPN. Sean did a whole first-person look back on that day. I will link to that in the show notes. The spirit of this episode is that hopefully 20 years from now we will no longer be calling it Sean Green Day but Bobby Miller Day a fan can dream alright be well For listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube.